are living in troubling times. But what does it mean to stay with the trouble, to work through it, to participate in it, even to redeem it? Welcome to Staying with the Trouble. In this podcast, we're bringing you conversations with people who have been compelled to think through a contemporary trouble, often in the face of personal upheaval or challenge to themselves. We want to consider what public theology might contribute to debates around these troubles, with topics ranging from race to COVID, from the environment to sexuality. My name is Tim Howells. And I'm Rosie Dawson. And we're bringing you these podcasts from the William Temple Foundation, a public theology think tank founded in memory of Archbishop William Temple. His vision laid the foundations of our welfare state and his work continues to prompt questions about the sort of society we want to build today. We're now joined by Joelle Robinson-Brown, who's Associate Chaplain at King's College London and an ordinand in the Church of England. His research area is Coptic monasticism and 4th century Egypt, but his staff page says he'll talk to anyone about absolutely anything, which makes him a great guest for us. Jarell, welcome to Staying With The Trouble. Thank you. Jarell, can I begin with the simple question, what is the trouble that you're staying with? For me, I think it's um, probably threefold. So on one level, it's about practising radical honesty and in the church and in society, I think that's quite... Um, troubling to people, that kind of preparedness to tell the truth. Um, Also, I think there's an aspect of me wanting to read late antiquity and the history of late antiquity um, from my own perspective as a black person and looking for the presence of of black people and our contribution in history um, from the 2nd to the 8th century, really. Um, And then lastly, I think there's the black Christian radical voice that tries to speak prophetically to what's happening in our world, in the church, um, and in our culture at the moment. So those three aspects kind of constitute uh, staying with the trouble for me or what the trouble looks like. So you are um, looking at the origins of Christianity and your argument is that Christianity is is African almost from the start. Mm. Um, did, Did you always know that? I don't think I did actually. No, I think it, I'd heard about it, but I didn't really believe it because when I went to study theology in Cambridge and trained for ministry, um, you know, the people who were teaching us didn't seem to say that. So the experts didn't seem to know it, um, which challenged then what I had heard from other people. And Christianity, at least in this country, um, in some of the spaces that I've experienced it, didn't feel very African. Um, so, how strongly would you put the case that Christianity in its origins from the second century anyway is is very largely african i put it very strongly i think you'd have to deny quite a lot to make a contrary argument so some of the the greatest thinkers and writers from the second to the fifth century i would say are are writing from an african context mainly some of the people that we really hail and hold up today as making a distinctive and original contribution um, so we're talking about Tertullian, Origen, Athanasius? Yep, um, Augustine. Augustine. I, I grew up in the 60s and it it was the Israel-Egypt war and all over our screens it was this is the problem in the Middle East mm. and and that sort of recognition that Egypt is Africa. Yeah. Um, that passed me by as a, as a child. Sure. I'd never thought that Egypt was in Africa and I wonder whether that's 
part of the problem. Definitely. I think it is. And and one of the things I wrestle with looking at the history of, of that time is how African was Egypt um, and what understanding of, of those people you know, how far can we discern their own understanding of themselves as African? And that's a, a very difficult thing. Um, and what we understand the distinctive markers of, of Africanness to be today might be different to what they were in late antiquity. So that is quite difficult. And also, of course, it was part of the Roman Empire for a long time. So, you know, Egypt in particular was shaped by that in a very deep way. And the world felt different. So it is African. And, and it is definitely Africa, but the extent to which that can be felt in their writing and in their outlook is something that I think is, that can be argued. Uh, and Cheryl, to, to what extent here are we overlapping categories when we talk about Africa or North Africa and black skin? What's yeah. the relation between those two in late antiquity? So I, I look at Coptic Christianity in particular, and people will say that what we see as Egyptians today um, would not have looked like the Egyptians of the second century, for example, um, and that people began to get lighter as people mixed with people from from other parts of the world. Um, to Sheikh Anta Diop, for example, says that, you know, if you want to look at the kind of people you would have found in Egypt, you need to look at the Ethiopians um, and the Nubians and, and people like that who were perhaps a little less impacted by the empire um, and by by cultural mixing to see what the original Egyptians would have looked like. And I tend to go with that because it, it seems to make sense to me. And again, in terms of talking about skin colour, we have to remember that I think our conversations that we have on race now, in the present day, are not the same. Um, what we would have spoken about or, or seen more in late antiquity is ethnicity, really, which might have been reflected in skin colour, but it certainly wouldn't have had the baggage that it has now. So I always have to be careful reading back, not to apply a kind of post-slavery lens onto absolutely everything. It's very helpful, isn't it? And that sort of retrospective historiography is that projecting of our voices, our context, our situations into late antiquity is a danger yeah. that you face as a historian, isn't it? It is. And yet it's still, skin colour still matters. And we see that, so, you know, in, in Athanasius' demonology, in his life of Antony, he, he can't seem to conceive of a demon that isn't black-skinned and ugly <laughs> and and he connects all of these things together and it's almost as though the demons are even more evil because of their blackness um, and that's seen to be a sign of their lack of intellect um, of their stupidity of their wickedness and I find that quite interesting and yet the desert fathers some of them if we're imagining a desert father sitting and doing their meditating a lot of them would have been black yeah yeah um, and then there's a challenge to that in the sense that Moses the Black is known as that and struggles in the desert in part because of his skin colour, which tells us something already in his time of what's going on in terms of the, the cultural shifts and how people look and appear. So they couldn't have been as dark as some of us might imagine if his dark skin is remarkable. You know, and he's, he's there in the 4th century and Cassian apparently meets him, um, but also says that he's the monk that was the most kind of remarkable for how he practices the aesthetic life. I suppose do, it doesn't do, help that he was also pretty remarkable for his life before he came, became a monk, which is absolutely. sort of, you know, also gangster really, wasn't it? Indeed, yeah, he was a, he was a criminal, um, as far as we know, and, and experienced this massive conversion and gave up his life of robbery and 
violence to then live in the desert. <laughs> and to what extent were there elements of um, whether we say colour or ethnicity embedded into theology at that time? I mean, I know that there are certain conversion narratives, aren't there, that seem uncomfortably close to sort of moving away from an ethnicity as you convert um, in some of the patristic fathers, even. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think any sense that... So, you know, Athanasius is one of many, I think, who, you know, we see this repeated narrative of whiteness being um, symbolic of purity and holiness and conversion and, and that sense of moving away from darkness into the lights as being part of people's conversion narrative. And we see that like, even someone like Origen, although I don't think he goes quite as far as some of the others, but even he speaks of the light that um, we find in scriptures and that we that is opened up for us through prayer. There isn't anyone, I think, who speaks of darkness in a positive way. But I think um, your own work, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, yeah. but you're, you've even suggested, I think, before our conversation, that there might have been resources sort of embedded into some of those early people groups that equipped them, if you like, for, for example, that uh, early monastic existence. Is that possible as well? So in terms of, do you mean in terms of the practices that they inhabit and the life that they live, there were earlier um, influences, definitely? Yeah. Um, one of the things we often think about is we speak of people like Antony and Paul as being the first people to inhabit the desert and to start off this um, life of of ascetic ascetic living and prayer. Um, but we know that the desert was populated before that. Um, and again, it's Athanasius who really runs with this thing of you know Antony making the desert a city, but actually people were there beforehand, and those would have been. Egyptians, most likely. But the point you're generally making, isn't it, that a lot of these um, very early thinkers and writers who have shaped Christian doctrine and theology were absolutely mm. steeped in, well, they were African, many of yeah. them. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's the point you're, you're making. And we don't yeah. recognise that. No, and I think a lot of them are, are undoubtedly shaped by what's happening in Alexandria as a place um, because of so much that's coming out of there. So even if they are not from Africa, they, they all have some kind of contact with it because um, what's happening in the desert and what's happening in Alexandria is is very important. And it's a very important bishop's seat as a site of authority. So there's no kind of life without knowing what's happening there. So it was a mixing pot of lots of different people and cultures. So we've had some fascinating case studies there, Jarrell. Is it true to say that some of those distinctives were already under threat, even in late antiquity, that there was already a sense that something that was distinctive about that geographical area was being um, captured or subsumed by, uh, by Rome or by the Mediterranean world in general? Well, definitely. I think one of the things we see is that um, in late antiquity, it was it was quite normal for men who lived in the Roman Empire to join the Roman army. And there was almost no other alternative for a long time. And suddenly you have men who are deciding to go off and live in the desert, some of them on their own, some to set up communities. Um, and so there's another option. And suddenly, I think, we see um, lots of the desert fathers who were either in the army or had the opportunity to go into the army um, deciding no to sacrifice all of that and live a life in the desert. And also there's a kind of contestation already happening in terms of um, liturgical life and prayer and beliefs that are originating um, 
in Africa, in North Africa, which don't quite tie in sometimes to what's happening in Rome so, and other places. So some of those distinctive practices that you're mapping out for us were all already, as it were, sort of reactions or um, avoidances of the mainstream culture out there. To- Absolutely. Yeah. You have kind of the, the brutality of war in a real way, um, where men were taking up swords to join an army and another form of war, and it was understood as warfare, where people were battling demons and trying to go, um, you know, deeply into the ascetic practice of fasting and meditation and silence. Um, and both were seen as very serious and important battles, but in different ways. And to even, I guess, even to speak of that city being built in the desert, was it, you know, itself, that form of word is itself a challenge, isn't it? To the Absolutely. great cities of the empire and all that that life... Uh, Encoded. All the big church and empire things mm. coming back again um, once the church had thought they had settled them. <laughs> so, Jarell, why is this research area of yours, which is fa- so fascinating, but why is it a trouble? I think it's a trouble because we haven't had many black theologians or historians looking at that. So, we, you know, one of the reasons that the Desert Fathers aren't seen as black and why some of the church fathers aren't seen as black is that black people haven't been writing on them. The majority of the black historians I know tend to write on slavery and on civil rights in America. Very few write on the ancient world. Or they tend to be in the States. And I think if we're not, you know, part of the trouble is is me saying I have as much permission and, and a right to write about this period of history um, from my own perspective as much as anyone else. And I, I'm also committed to the reality that None of us write history divorced from our context. So I really do think that that's a myth, that you can kind of just look at the facts and not put yourself into it, because we look, we look for what's important to us. So, so what are you putting into it from, from your context? Well, I'm looking at it from my perspective. Um, so I'm looking at race, I'm looking at sexuality, I'm looking at gender and desire in that period of the 2nd to the 8th century. I want to come to that in a minute, but I, I, you, earlier you spoke to me about some of the, the um, resistance that you come across mm. when you point out to people that Christianity was shaped by African thinkers. Where do you encounter that resistance? Sometimes in the academy, so from some um, academics who I guess feel that the field should be protected from people who are finding their way, like me, and starting out but also who I think don't appreciate why these things are important. Do you know, why, why would you want to look at race within that period? Because such a thing didn't exist. And, you know, of course they weren't black in the way in which people are black today. And, you know, they didn't understand themselves to be African. My thing is we have to ask all of the questions and no question should be off the table. And it's not just... It's not just um, contemporary academic world, is it, Jarell? I mean, how how has some of that uh, taken place, um, that rewriting taken place in church history itself? I know, for example, you've thought a little bit about Celtic Christianity, haven't you? How has that mm-hmm. sort of sort of retell or erase certain um, linkages in its own deep history? I think you can see if you follow the pattern of historiography and also kind of academic writing on on history that. There seems to be times and periods when people are looking for um, certain things within a period and suddenly things just disappear. So there's a sense in which on the Celtic front, for example, I'm not doing anything new in a way because at one point, I would say between 1920 and 1960, um, people were asking some of the questions I'm asking now. But you can already see how, because of 
one or two prominent scholars, the narrative has changed, which just goes to prove that um, it's not the facts that actually shape the writing, but we write from our perspective and... You know, and the narrative becomes we've got a, we've got an indigenous form of Christianity here in Ireland, bought by St Patrick, um, exactly. and the people on the high crosses are Patrick and Palladius, but not Anthony and Paul, Paul of Thebes. Mm, um, mm. Do you do you feel the pushback there? I do, I do. So there's a there's one particular academic who's very prominent and who's written on St. Patrick and Island and I literally just reached out to ask a question about whether a theory I had had any mileage and um, my question was completely ignored and I was told that it's no smoking gun and you know basically I was asked a list of 12 other questions that had nothing to do with what I had asked um, and he just wouldn't engage. Do you remember what the question was? Well I was asking given that we we don't know the origins of the Palladius that we hear about in Egypt and we don't know of the death of the Palladius that we hear going to Ireland. Palladius is an Irish bishop. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I wanted to know whether there could be any sense of um, names and narratives being connected and just asking that question generally. It is amazing, isn't it, how uh, the pushback you can get from the academic world when you begin to pull at threads or challenge Absolutely. paradigms. And I think that's fairly deeply embedded in our psychologists, isn't it, as human it beings? Is. Can I can I uh, can I push us forward a little bit more to let's say the the contemporary church, our contemporary world now? What difference would this perspective on early African history make to to somebody in the pews, to somebody mm. who perhaps might want to pick up Augustine or the Confessions, let's say, read it on the beach over a summer? Is there anything here that will help or challenge that that person in the pews? I think for me it's really simple and one of the most basic things I think is that most people, and this comes from my own pastoral experience, don't realise that Christianity is an Eastern faith. <laughs> you know, we, we think of it as being kind of indigenous to the West and on that basic level it just helps take people nearer to the historical Jesus, which I think is really important. And then to look back and think, well, of course, if Jesus is Eastern and if Christianity is Eastern, most of the stuff written in the earliest time of the church would have come from that part of the world. Um, and then that shapes everything. You know, it questions why we worship in a certain way, why we use the languages that we do, why we feel like it's a special kind of concession to have a hymn in another language or a liturgy that, you know, incorporates things from around the world. So just to push, just to even push you a little further, if I may, sure. let's go back to the confessions. I mean, we spoke earlier, didn't we, about the danger of sort of retro projecting our own psychologies back into late antiquity. Who can really know? But would it make a difference as we encounter that, you know, that psychodrama of the confessions and it's give it's yielding up to God? Is there a, a difference in, in a sort of the, the theological output of that book? Because if you know, if we were to take on board your fresh perspective. Uh, I think there are things there that we can see. So, you know, one of the things that Augustine is really wrestling with, I think, in that, and most people I'm sure would agree, is that, you know, he's working out almost what role sin will play in his life. And it's a kind of, you know, he doesn't want to get baptised because he's worried about sinning after it. And he's he's working this stuff out. And there's something in that, I think, which is true for all of us. We might not put it down on paper, but we ha we go through that experience. And I think somewhere in the Confessions, Augustine says... You know, in my deepest wound, I saw your glory um, and it astounded me. And maybe there's something there about what it is to be a black Christian in the society in which we live, 
the wounds that we carry um, are those openings for the glory of, of God. And has this been said by a black writer before? Maybe that's part of our tradition and our heritage. Um, what does the woundedness of Augustine have to say to the woundedness of, of black communities in London, in New York, in wherever it might be? That sense of connection, that Augustine belongs to something of our identity in a special way. Just going back to the Desert Fathers, um, Jarell, because I want to look at the intersection of your troubles as someone who is championing Christianity's African origins and as a gay person. You told me a story about Shanuta Atreep, mm. who was the abbot of a white monastery, although whether they were That's all right. white is debatable. <laughs> um, just, just tell me about his significance for you. OK, so he's someone that I discovered... I think maybe two or three years ago now and he is a monk who lives in the fourth century um, of upper Egypt so near a place called Sahag so very far from where Antony and Paul and all the rest are he finds himself growing up in a in a monastery um, but his contribution in terms of his um, experience of monastic life made me realize that there was this person who was living at the intersection of religion race and sexuality um, or at least ethnicity and sexuality and he's a really fascinating character he wrote a, a book about homoerotic desire didn't he well he wrote some rules about um, life in the monastery and the really telling thing is that they, they could be a book on homoerotic desire because they practically are um, he grows up in a monastery and he's living there which is um, ruled by his uncle and um, there's a monk in terms of leadership between um, his uncle and himself and when this next monk becomes a superior, uh, Shunita has a dream of this superior and another monk basically having sex. And Shunita can't deal with this. And he writes to the superior to say, you know, I've had this, this dream. It's come from the Lord. Um, this is what we need to do about this because this is happening in our community. And the superior basically doesn't deal with it and says, oh, I'm sure this isn't happening. You know, I've seen no evidence of this. Um, so Shunita packs his bags and leaves the kind of walls of the monastery to live um, in a cell by himself just outside of it. And eventually, a very long story cut short, Shunuta becomes a superior. And when he does, he obviously writes his rules for this monastery. And I would say around 80% of them are to do with how monks do or do not touch each other, what they wear, where they look. Um, so you're not supposed to look up at a monk in a tree or a monk who's bending into that to take something out of the oven. Um, you're not supposed to take a bee sting out of a monk's foot or help to wash a monk. Um, you must always walk in, you know, groups and not two together. Um, people mustn't get to the refectory early um, and they mustn't stay there after the meal's finished. Um, and you can basically see him trying to eliminate any possibility um, for sex to take place in the monastery. And of course, if you're talking about monastic sex, you're almost always talking about gay or lesbian sex because they are most often split by gender. Um, so that's him, and that's, that's um, part of his contribution to monastic literature. And what does it tell you? Well, it tells me, I think, that he was aware of, of this happening, and it bothered him enough to write about it. And there's something about Shanuta's language and the tone that he takes, um, which almost makes you feel as though he's afraid of homosexuality. Um, and then leads you to wonder about his own his own identity as a person and why this is so important above 
every other sin and of all the rules to be broken in the monastery, you know, sex or desire between two men is the absolute worst, <laughs> you know. But, I mean, you could find that very depressing, but you don't seem to be. You seem to have been sort of cheered in some way by, <laughs> by finding this, and I wonder why. I think because it pushes back on the idea that... Um, early African Christians knew nothing of homosexuality and that it wasn't part of their life um, and their culture. And here we see, you know, Shinuta was only able to understand what he saw in that dream because he knew what gay sex looked like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this wasn't unidentifiable to him. And it, the fact that he had to write rules about it meant that he knew that this was a practice, that this, this happened. And it's difficult because, of course, you can't, tell how far he would have understood that to be part of people's identity but I think there is something positive just about finding a text from the fourth century that speaks about this in this way within an African context um, albeit in a monastic one. Now you um, served as a Methodist minister in a, mm. a church in London of a predominantly African congregation and there's a story to tell us briefly there about what happened to that, but I just wondered then if there's any kind of link between your discovery of Shanuta and what happened to you. Sure, well it's funny because my move back to London, which was to, to take up the appointment to serve those two churches, um, happened at a time when I, I met the most Coptic Christians I'd ever met and began to really draw closer to the Coptic community in this country. I also moved back to take up an appointment of, of these churches, which were black majority and mainly West African. And their reaction to me was quite visceral because they had this idea that, you know, there was no such thing as being black and gay, um, that homosexuality was inherently un-African, that this is something that white people brought to us through colonial times and that has sadly stayed and is a stain on the black community. And there I was as someone who was openly, proudly part of the LGBT community and a Christian. Um, but they couldn't handle that. It was too much. Um, and their response from quite a few people was quite violent, leading to, you know, harassment calls and hate mail and petitions to get me moved on and, and resignations on their part from their posts. And a congregation in both churches that just went down and down each Sunday. So it was quite interesting to experience. And a hierarchy that couldn't deal with it. Yeah, sadly. So, you know, in the same way that Shinutsa found his own situation kind of overbearing um, and had to move out of the situation almost in some ways, distance himself from it, I found the hierarchy in a different way, failing to really address it in a helpful way. So then you move into the Anglican Church and the phrase frying pan and fire come to mind. <laughs> Because as far as sexuality is concerned, it's as, as messed up as anywhere. It is, but I, I do think the Church of England is, is at least honest about where it is. And I think what happened to me in Methodism was allowed to happen because Methodism lives a myth of being a welcoming and inclusive space. The Church of England at least knows that it's, it's pretty shoddy, that's putting it lightly. Um, and everyone seems to know that, and we'll talk about it. Um, and and again, all of that, you know, is tied in with race and, and lots of worries about the Anglican Communion in parts of Africa and around the world. Um, um, we, we ask people about what have been the costs to them of staying with the trouble. I mean, some of those have already been clear. Um, 
it's a cost-benefit analysis, contradictions. On the one hand, enormous cost, um, you know, particularly in your experience in, in the church in London, I guess. Um, any other costs and how do they measure up against the, the benefits to you personally of the work that you're doing? I think there's, you know, there's a cost in terms of in the communities that I belong to. So, you know, people in the black community, whatever that is, um, will find my interest in history and academia quite odd at times. And people within the LGBT community might find me trying to find positive queer theologies in the history of the church a waste of time. Um, and benefits, I think, you know, I wouldn't have ever been able to really experience um, academic life without what happened um, in those churches in in South East London, because it was being off work for a long time. That forced me, I think, to, to look at what else I might end up doing with my life and to consider doing further study. Um, it pushed me to that. Um, and it was it was over that period that I, I went out to Egypt as well between jobs and experienced the desert for the first time and suddenly you could see a lot that I hadn't seen. And did you come to a new understanding of yourself in doing that? Definitely. Um, and I think also, you know, also a, a deepening of my prayer life and my outlook on the world. There's something about trauma, I think, which actually does clarify your vision in a way which you would never want, but which comes to you and I'm not sure if you're ever really grateful for that but it is a one of the kind of residues of of an experience that's so kind of reality breaking and shattering that you are planted thrown into a deeper reality that most of us wouldn't want to experience. Well Jarell thank you so much it's been a wide-ranging but sensitively conducted conversation I've learned an awful lot myself so really a very big thank you indeed for for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, Thank you to Rosie Dawson as well, my co-host, who's also series producer and all-round organiser of this podcast series. Rosie, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Jarell. Thank you. And thank you to you, the listener. Do join us again next week for another episode of Staying With The Trouble. Bye-bye.